Thank you. Uh, many people have asked me if the stories about my wife are true. Uh, this is my wife, Jeannie. Yeah. And uh, she doesn't like standing in front of people or being recorded on camera or talking to you yet. But if you told and talked to her outside, she would love to talk to you about that. She's uh, much more happy with one-on-one. -on -one. This is the last time you'll probably see her in front of you. You know how marriages sometimes have people who are really crazy and people who are not crazy? I'm crazy. She's not. <laughs> Anyway, she loves being here, right? Yeah. Yeah, she loves being here and things are going well. I didn't force her to come out, but anyway. Anyway, thank you, honey. I love you very much. Yeah. Uh, the reason she wheeled me out is because that's the way I have her take me everywhere. Um, actually, um, so I was riding my bike on the, uh, the, the, some of the trails here on Monday and I hit some, some uh, leaves and there were water on those leaves, and my bike just went out from under me, and I, so I fractured my tibia, uh, which I don't know how long that'll last, but I'm getting pampered, so it probably a long time. Probably last a good long time. I also have to tell you that the last couple weeks, I have not been uh, here. I've been back in Canada, and uh, I just wanted to tell you that, uh, you know, sometimes you go back to where you moved from, and you're like, why did we move? Um, I went back to where I moved from, and I just realized after two days, I was like, man, I miss those Harvest people. <laughs> so I'm really thankful. Yeah, I was really excited to come back, and I'm really excited that we get to study God's Word together. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 11 to 23 in the next few minutes. Um, while you're turning there, let me just tell you a little story. Um, I first got into ministry as a youth pastor in, in a farming community in Washington State. In that farming community, there was a, there was a thing they did every year. It was called, uh, it was like a children's day camp. I can't remember exactly what they called it, but it was like the biggest event that they did all year long was to gather all the kids from the community together, and our church put on this massive day camp, and lots and lots of kids came we had to do some training, though, and one of the ladies who was in charge of the whole thing, she did some training for us, and she taught us how to use this little book called a wordless book, and some of you guys have probably been around long enough to know what a wordless book is. If you don't know, it's basically a book that has different colored pages, and you can tell the story of the gospel, the message about why Jesus came, how he died on a cross for our sins, and how you should respond to him in this little book. So she gave us this training. I remember being at, at her house and she had a whole group of us there and she gave us this training and then at the end of the training, she told a story about how she had used this book to, to lead a little girl to Christ, which was, of course, fantastic. But what really struck out to me was what she said at the end. She said, when I led her in a prayer, I had her repeat after me and then she spoke this prayer. And at the end of saying that, she said, so... I hope that she said the right words. I guess God only knows. And I was like, well, okay, wait a minute. I wasn't really a seasoned Christian much, and so I was thinking, wait a minute, so I don't... Like, when we stand before God, is it gonna become like that open sesame moment where you, you have to say the right phrase, you know, Beetlejuice to get, it, to get in, or... Jumanji or whatever it is, and God's going to say, okay, what's the secret word? And then you give the secret words, and he's going to say, so close. 
It just led me thinking in, that, in those days and, and even since, um, is that what responding to the gospel requires? You know, somebody presents the gospel and the right response, the right response that is evidence that you're a, a true Christian and you truly believe, is it just saying the right words? Also, I've been wondering, what is the right way to present the gospel to somebody? Like if you were gonna summarize what the gospel message is, right, the good news about Jesus Christ, gospel means good news. If you were going to tell somebody, okay, this is what it is, how would, how would you do that? I remember watching a video of a guy, we did this big event at my church once, and we had a video of a guy who was, who was doing the, the teaching, and uh, the guy got to the end, and he was going to present the gospel, and his, here's his gospel presentation. If you come to Jesus, he will reduce your stress. And I was like, really not my experience, right? Like, suffering is not one of those things that, you know, people kind of give you stink eyes sometimes when you're a Christian and things like that. So I, I didn't... Is that okay? Is that right? Like if, you, if I said, hey, Jesus is gonna reduce your stress and then you responded by saying, great, I wanna have my stress reduced, so let's pray to receive Christ. And so I lead you in a prayer and of course you have to say the right words or you're not getting into heaven. Is that how it works? Well, this passage in Acts chapter three, I think that Luke, who wrote this book, this is the second, the, the second part of his overall work. His work is the Gospel of Luke, and then he follows it with the book of Acts. In this second work, I think he puts this passage in here to try to give you some evidence of what an actual gospel presentation looks like and what it looks like for people to genuinely respond to it. So in this passage, I've got seven reminders about good explaining and good responding to the gospel. Seven reminders of good explaining and good responding to the gospel. I usually have three points in my sermons, and this is seven. So buckle up. We will try to make it through, I promise. It, it won't be that long, just by, you know, midnight. Here's the first of them. The surprising work of God often paves the way for the gospel. One thing so you need to remember and remind yourself is that the surprising work of God often paves the way for the gospel. So here's verse 11 of Acts chapter three. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. So the first thing you're thinking is, okay, who's he? When he clung to Peter and John, and why is he clinging to these guys? All right, so let's just back up a minute. The beginning of Acts chapter three, you get this really interesting story about this beggar who's sitting, he's lame, and he's sitting at the gate of the temple. The gate of the temple is a really good place to sit because lots of people who go to the temple are really um, pious, right? They're good religious folks, and of course, good religious folks tend to be more giving of their money they called alms in those days, more giving of those things than maybe non-religious folks. And so he set himself up right at the gate of the temple. And he, like somebody who sits there every day, I mean, he's been there every day. We don't know how long, but he's a regular appearance for people who go in and out of the temple. Is this guy sitting at the edge of the temple. I don't know if he's got a sign there that says homeless, can't get a job. I don't know what he's got, but he keeps saying to people, alms, alms, alms. And if you know 
people who are in this situation or you've been in a part of your town where there's the same guy or the same woman sitting there every day doing the same, same uh, requesting of alms, you know that sometimes they don't make eye contact with you. It's just sort of like, I'm just, I'm here. This is my way of getting enough money to live. And so he's, he's there, he's doing that. He's not making eye contact with anyone. So Peter and John, who just happened to be entering the temple, stop and they look at the guy and, and, and they say, um, look at us, which kind of shocks him. And he looks at them thinking, of course, you guys are gonna give me some money. And Peter says, listen, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I'm gonna give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. He grabs the guy's hand. He lifts him right up. Anybody want to try this with me right now? No? Okay. <laughs> he, lifts, he lifts him right up, and the guy's ankles are strengthened, and he starts standing, you know, maybe wobbly at first, and then all of a sudden he starts, the language of the scripture says, he starts walking and leaping and praising God. Walking. That's a song I learned when I was a little guy. He's running around the temple. This, this guy who everybody in the temple knows like he's part of the furniture, basically. And they all know him. No, they've never seen him walk. He's always begged. And now he is running around, shouting and screeching in joy. Now, you can imagine if you're, you know, 100 yards down the way, you hear this kind of commotion. It's not the kind of thing that happens every day at the temple. And so you hear this massive commotion. You see this guy, and you're like, isn't that the guy who is sitting at the gates every day? And it, you think, yes. And you say to your friend, is that the guy? Yeah, that's the guy. You, in this moment, would be what we call utterly astounded. And that's what they were. So this guy, he's clinging to Peter and John. Not because he needs them to support his legs or anything, but because he is so thankful and so overwhelmed by what God has done in his grace for this guy that he's clinging to them and the crowd forms. Two, three, four, five deep, trying to look around. This is the guy, this is the guy, this is the guy. Maybe people walking up trying to push him over. Is this real? Utterly astounded. These people ran together to them in a portico called Solomon's. Portico means it's a big porch, right? It's a 300-yard-long porch, so kind of like my backyard. 300 yards, that's a lot. Three football fields. Big columns, high ceiling, covering over this massive marble floor. It's where they did a lot of bartering and business and stuff in those days. And so it was the place where everybody gathered. And this, this event happens right there, right in the middle of everybody. And they all gather around and they're massively astounded at all this that's going on. Listen, one of the things that you will find as you go through the book of Acts is that often prior to the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, there is some surprising work of God. Some healing some act of kindness, some deliverance from a demon, something. The person has a felt need, an immediate felt need, and God deals with that. And the apostles take the opportunity in that moment as missionaries to jump in and say, let me explain to you why that happened. surprising work of God often paves the way 
for the gospel. This is the way, of course, like I said, in the book of Acts, it happens. Uh, Acts 16, there's this really interesting story about they're in, Paul and Silas are in the, in, in the, the town of Philippi, and while they're there, they get in trouble, and they eventually get jailed, and they're put in the stocks. Jail is shut, and there's a jailer there whose only job is to guard the jail, make sure nobody leaves. If anybody leaves the jail, the jailer's life is on the line. Those were the rules in the Roman world. So this jailer, thinking everything's okay, hears Paul and Silas singing. Now that's weird, right? Because the last time you went to jail, you weren't singing, right? Like you, but they're singing praises to God. Jailer's hearing it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the whole place starts to shake. Doors of the jail are wide open. The stocks come loose. Lights, everything's out. Chaos. And the jailer immediately knows he's done because, of course, everyone's going to leave. <laughs> So he pulls out a sword, he's ready to kill himself, and he hears Paul say, whoa, 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 we're all here, we're all here, didn't leave. By the way, if you guys had a chance, if you were in jail for something you don't really think you should have done, or even if you were there because you did do it, and the jail kind of swings open and the jailer is kind of knocked out and there's nobody watching, you, you'd stay there, right? You'd be like, well, I, it's the honest thing to do, <laughs> like... But Paul stayed, they stay, and so this jailer's going, what in the world is going on? He goes and checks to make sure they're not lying to him, or maybe they're crowding in a jail cell, so they'll come around and they'll pounce on him, and no, nothing. Paul, Silas are there, and then the guy, listen to what it says, Acts 16, verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The surprising work of God paved the way for the gospel to have an effect. This guy named Ajith Fernando, he's Sri Lankan. He's a missionary. He's actually written a commentary in the book of Acts. He's a re remarkable man. Uh, he tells a story about how, remember the tsunami in 2004, a lot, a lot of you? About 250,000 people in Sri Lanka and India and that area actually died in this horrible tsunami. We make movies about it now. Well, prior to that, the militant Hindus that lived in Sri Lanka used to burn down the churches of the Christians. They hated them. Didn't matter what the Christians did, they would come and burn down the churches. A lot of Christians were getting killed by these militant Hindus. And then the tsunami happens. Wipes out everything. Now, interesting, the, the Christian churches were kind of up on a hill and the Hindu temples were lower down. And so when the tsunami came in, it just wiped out the temples and wiped out all the houses of all these Hindu people that had been burning down their churches. Now, if you're a vindictive sort, you probably be standing on the hill in your, in your house or your church going, <laughs> see, don't mess with God. But these guys, these Christians, who's lost their, lost their churches and some of them lost their brothers and sisters to... These Hindu militants, they went, they actually went down to the houses after the after the waters receded, they went down to the houses of these Hindu people and they started to rebuild them. The Christians did. The Christians were down there building these houses for these Hindus that were trying to kill them all the time. Finally, Fernando tells this story. He says, I'm up on this ladder and I'm 
banging away on this house, and next to me comes one of the Hindu leaders on his ladder. He, he personally burned down one of our churches. He comes up next to me. I'm a little bit freaked out, right? He kind of stands looking at me on the ladder. I'm on the other ladder, still pounding the nail in, and the guy says, I just, I just need to apologize. We didn't know who you were. Tell me about your God. I have a dear friend, she, uh, she is a palliative care nurse. So when you talk to her, she has lots and lots of sad stories about sitting by the bedside of people as they die. One day I was interviewing her for a podcast I used to do and I, I asked her the question, uh, is there a difference between the way that Christians die and the way that unbelievers die? I, don't, I didn't know the answer. And she said, oh my goodness, yes. She said, if there's one thing that I can point to that is evidence for the reality of Jesus and the lives of people among my peers, who most of whom don't believe in God, all the other nurses and doctors, if there's one thing I can point to, it's the way Christians suffer and die. It's just different. They do it in hope, Jeff. They do it in hope. And when they pass away, their families are usually praying around them, grieving horribly, but also grieving with hope. And it's different. It's just different. Right, yeah. See, when you live a life that is remarkably different than what is expected by the society around you, when you suffer well, when everybody else doesn't suffer well, when you do it with hope and with joy, when you are wronged and you forgive, the people who don't believe around you just don't understand this. Why did you stay in the jail? The surprising work of God lays a great foundation for the gospel. Second, the gospel is a message to be explained. The gospel is a message to be explained. And so verse 12, uh, and when Peter saw it, right, he saw the people gathering together all around him and this, this other guy who's clinging to him and John, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? As, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Now, I just want to focus on, on the fact that Peter addresses them. And you guys are like, what's the big deal about addressing them? Well, I, here's the big deal, I'll tell you. Um, I was sitting in my office one day and we had some missionaries that had come back from the Philippines. And they called themselves... Um, what, I've got to make sure I get it right. Peace and water gospel missionaries. Peace and water gospel missionaries. So anyway, we were sitting together. I was asking them about their ministry, and it was really interesting. They said, well, what we do is we go between these warring tribes, and we try to broker a peace. See the peace? And we also go to the different villages, and we try to, try to you know, get water, clean water for the people. And I was like, that's fantastic, right? That's just Awesome. When does the gospel come? And they said, well, that is the gospel. Oh, I said, wait, 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 no. It, but the word gospel means good news. That's what it means. Like, I've never watched the news and seen them acting it out. Like, messages are things that you, that you tell. It's not, you know, we're not a bunch of mimes. We have voices and mouths, and our job is to declare, Right? They said, no, 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 no. 
our message is water and peace and health. And I said, yes, but why water and peace and health? You're doing all the implications of the gospel, which in my view are necessary. But where's the gospel? They didn't quite uh, understand where I, was, where I was going. And so I said, okay, so look, you know that saying from Saint, supposedly from St. Francis of Assisi? Everybody knows. It's like, this is one of the ones that's ever on everybody's uh, mirror. Yeah, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And they said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. And I said, well, but no, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And a sissy probably never said it, right? Francis never said it. Because preaching the gospel, declaring a message is something that requires words. Don't you see? Like if Peter in this passage believed what they did, he would have healed the guy, everyone would have come around, and he would have said, cool, eh? Right? I mean, right? Anybody else? Come here. I'll heal you too. But the healing paved the way for the, the gospel. Yes, the gospel will work itself out in the good works of those who receive it, but it, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ that you and I are called to declare with words. Couched by actions, yes, but with words. It's news to be reported. It's a message to be explained. So in a passage, for example, like Paul is about to die, and so he writes the, his last letter, and he's, for second, uh, sorry, second Timothy chapter four, here's his final words to his like favorite protege, Timothy. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. Keruxo ton logon. Ton logon, the word. Keruxo. You know where that, that's from? It's, the word means herald. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. This is the thing that somebody would do in the ancient world if the king came to the city gates and was going to say, like, we basically surrounded the city, so you guys might want to give up in there in the city. And so he sends in a herald. And the herald goes in, they open the gates for the herald, and the herald walks through the city saying, hear ye, hear ye. The king offers, the coming king offers amnesty if you're willing to bow your knee. Can you imagine the herald going in there? Four words. The king, like... Sounds like no, that he, no. That to herald means to declare a message. That's the thing. What is, well, Timothy? What do you have to do going forward to continue this ministry, this church? Preach the word. Declare the message. The good works are great, but they're not enough. Christians seek to alleviate suffering, both present and eternal. The second one, guys, is going to require words. Number three, a good gospel explanation doesn't avoid hard words. Yeah, he uses words, but it doesn't avoid hard ones. So verse 12, uh, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Don't you love, just pause there. Don't you love the fact that Peter at every turn is trying to defer away from him the attention that people are giving him? 
This is not about me, he says. It's not power that I myself have. This is power of God. Man, there's a lot of pastors who could hear this. Anyway, moving on. As though by our own power of piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, who you guys, yeah, I'm talking to you. <laughs> you see him in the crowd. Nope, you too, I saw you. You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, right? The resurrection, we're witnesses of it. And the fact that you guys did it, you guys did it. What's he referring to here? Well, it's this story, actually in the book of Luke, that Luke tells about this guy named Barabbas. There was a tradition among the, among the Romans as a means to get the Jews to like them a little more. They had a tradition that every year they would release a prisoner into their hands, right? So pick your favorite prisoner. And we will give him back. So Pilate, who's a Roman, gets Jesus handed to him by the Jews, and he asks Jesus a bunch of questions, and he comes to the conclusion, there's nothing, even, this guy's done nothing wrong. So he goes out to the crowd, and he's like, okay, guys, he's not done anything wrong. And they're like, crucify him, crucify him. So he goes back, thinks a little bit more, comes back, he's done nothing wrong. Crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. We don't want this Jesus. Give us the murderer, the insurrectionist. That's, that's the one we want. Bring him out here. We'll make a trade. You keep Jesus, free Barabbas. Pilate goes back, and on the third occasion, he comes out and says, really, guys, are you serious? Crucify him. Three chances. They deny him, just like Peter did. So along comes Peter, who knows a little bit about denial, and he says, right then, <laughs> this is what you guys did. You specifically did. You had a chance to free the Lord of life, the author of life, and you didn't do it. You didn't do it. How do you think God's going to feel about that? How do you think the author of life feels about that? You think he's going to judge you? Peter points out their particular wickedness, guys. He doesn't talk about sin in general. He says, here's exactly how it is that you've sinned. I gotta tell you, that, that seems like a good way to turn them off. Is, I mean, isn't it? If I were giving advice, I'd say, guys, listen, Peter, if you're gonna talk about sin, just talk about it broadly. Don't talk about how they actually took Barabbas instead of, instead of Jesus. But Peter's not, he's not afraid of hard words. And a good gospel explanation doesn't avoid hard stuff. It's, it's honest. But some of us feel like we gotta sell it, right? That gospel, we get this package, we're like, well, how are we gonna sell this? It's, it's a car to us. I'm gonna tell you, one of my favorite things that I've, that's ever happened to me at a car dealer is this, is this guy in Spokane, Washington, we, uh, Eastern Washington, we go get a car. I'm like 20, 40 years old. We're going to get a car, me and my wife, we show up at this car, car dealer's lot, and we say, listen, we don't have much money, but we need to have a car that we think will work. And he goes, seriously, he's got his shirt, you know, down here. Sorry about that. He has his shirt, you know, down here, you know, white shoes. How you doing? Just the stereotypical guy. And I was like, oh, is this guy serious? I said to my wife. She said, no, nah, I think he's just playing a game. No, he comes out, 
how you doing? Hey, we're just looking for this kind of a cheapish car and stuff like that, but it needs to be reliable and stuff like, oh, I got the one just for you. Come on. He walks over, and he walks us, listen, he walks us to this late, late, late 70s, this is in the 90s, late 70s model Toyota pickup truck that had more rust than Pooh Brown than it had, and it had a lot of Pooh Brown. It was hideous. And I started to giggle. He goes, no, 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 come here, come here, come here. It might not look great on the outside, but this baby hums. And he turned the, he turned the ignition, and immediately a backfire. <laughs> And then my favorite line, listen to her purr. <laughs> Sounds like she did other things. I started laughing. I said, you, you got to be kidding me. No, 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 I'm not kidding. Come on, come on, come on, we'll get in. No, no, we're leaving. He started walking. Where are you going? Where are you going? It's the best car you're going to see. I've thought about that a lot of times in the past because that's the way, you know, that's the way you sell something, isn't it? I mean, you don't tell the people that this is a, this is a piece of junk, Right? You sell the car, you sell the timeshare, it's gonna be the best thing you ever bought. You'll never regret it. That's the way we sometimes feel like we have to sell the gospel. We have to share it with people and we have to say, look, can we just hide the hard bits? Nobody's gonna buy it if you tell them the hard bits. If you tell them that this, might, this is gonna cost you your life. Like there's no half-heartedness in, in Jesus. He's gonna actually call you for everything. Yeah, it's free, it's free, but it's gonna require everything of you. So you might want to, before you go and you build that house, figure out whether or not you have the materials to finish. We don't, we don't say that. And the reason we don't say it is because we think we're not we're going to turn the people off. And so here's what we instead say. I used to ride my bike an awful lot, as you can see. I used to ride my bike an awful lot, and I used to listen to sermons from people all over the world. And I started to notice that some of the most popular preachers in the world today have the same sermon. Okay, and here's how it goes. Um, I call it the gospel of destiny fulfillment. God has made you special. You don't realize how special you actually are, and he has created you for a unique destiny. And that destiny is here on earth. What's your destiny? What's your dream? Do you want to have a business? Do you want to own a plane? Do you want to... Fill in the blank. Have a husband? That's your destiny. You have a destiny. It's a dream that's inside of you. Remember Joseph? He had a dream, and he had all these bad guys talking to him all the time about how his dream wasn't come to fulfillment. you got to remove those people from your life. In fact, Jesus died to make your dream come true. That's the good news. Isn't that good news? That thing inside of you, that hope, that longing for this thing on this earth, that Jesus frees you to discover it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, not to give you hope in a future. It's not, that's not what that verse means anyway. But yeah, that's, see? It's a gospel of destiny fulfillment. Now, when I tell you that, are you all sitting here and thinking to yourself, no, nah, I don't want that. Cost too much. No, you're like, give me some of that destiny, boy. <laughs> like, you're right in. Right. Everybody's going to write in, but in the middle of it, did anyone ever mention sin or, or, or repentance or the categories that the Bible itself, that Peter uses? A good gospel explanation doesn't avoid hard words. In fact, good news is good because the bad news is bad.
If you really want people to appreciate the salvation they have, you better be pretty committed to telling them what they were saved from. And it's not just a bad day or your business not coming to fruition. Number four, the message demands a response. You guys are gonna have to listen a lot faster than what you're doing, okay? Here we go. Verse 16, the message demands a response. And his name, by faith in his name, right? So faith is key to receiving this message. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So you're thinking to yourself, okay, but what kind of, what does that faith look like? And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but when God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So here's what you need to do. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn, notice two steps. Repent, word means metanoia, it means to change the mind. I don't know if I agree with what I was doing before. I've changed my mind. Repent, change your mind, and turn back. Or in other parts of the scripture, show fruit in keeping with repentance. Show that the repentance, the change of your mind, actually works itself out into what you actually do. That's what Peter says to you. If you really want to follow Jesus, if you want a faith in Jesus, here's what you gotta do. You gotta repent, and you gotta turn back from your former manner of life. My wife and I were tra- riding bikes with my kids when they were really little. I had this little bike seat for my daughter on the front of my bike. She loved that, man. We would ride, ride along. We didn't really know where we were going at the time when we were doing all these bike trips. So I looked online and I found this little bike destination that you know, sounded like it was a good idea. They had a little map. Drove out into the country. Thought we found the place. Nobody was parked there, but I was like, it says it's here on the map. So I parked, get all the bikes off, little kids, two little kids, my wife, me, little baby. We're gonna go riding our bikes. We start down, and there's a trail at first, but eventually the trail disappears, and we're just like into, into farm. And my wife's behind me saying, um, honey, I don't think this is a trail. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right. And I keep riding. Um, honey... I don't think this is a trail. No, you're right about that. Keep going, right? (laughs) Honey, honey. Eventually, I go down this hill thinking there's a trail. There's got to be a trail somewhere in this area, right? We'll find it. I go down this hill, and we go into this, like, little marshland, and I mean, here in Chicago, you guys all know that the mosquitoes are horrible, but I went down to this marshland, and, like, the whole marsh lifted up, and then it formed a cloud that surrounded me and my little girl, who had probably 100 mosquitoes all on top of her. And I grabbed the bike, I turned it around, and I said, run away! And I started taking off the other way, and my wife's like, I told you! <laughs> right, that, I actually think that's the way that many of us treat repentance. We say, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, that is true. I went to church and I heard that. Right? Don't do that! You're going the wrong way, says the Lord our God through his Holy Spirit. Nope, got it. 
the deed you turn back. I kind of want to be a little bit pushy with this. You do know in James chapter 2, verse 18, here's what it says. Uh, Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. See, you believe God is one. That's an orthodox statement. You have really good beliefs. You believe God is one. You do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. So in other words, if you profess a faith, if you say, no, 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 I agree with you, God, that's right, but your life doesn't show marks of that, you basically have a demonic faith. Do you think that's gonna save you? Or do you think you're fooling yourself? No, no, I hear what you say, God, about my sexual life, I get it. I hear about greed. Yeah, no, I'm with you, man. The Bible says a lot of good stuff to say about all of my greed. A right response, or excuse me, the message demands a response. All right, so here's number five. A right response to the message results in the blotting out of sins. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. I used to play bingo on, on, thank, on uh, Halloween in my old church. We didn't play for money. It's okay. But you know, do you guys ever play bingo and you have those big blotters? You and it wipe. I'll do that again. It wipes out the whole number. You can't see the number anymore. The, the language here, it, the word blot out means, means to wipe away, right? So those soap commercials, those shower commercials, look at your shower door, it's horrible, but if you spray this secret sauce on it, you can wipe it away, and you're like, oh my gosh, it just totally wipes, it's not there anymore. Right, that's, that's what happens. If, if you repent and turn back, says Peter, then, then God, what he does is he blots out, he wipes away your sin. Psalm 103, verse 10, uh, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Like, just keeps them like, like if you don't bring them together, you know, around Fiji, they just go. They go, and they go, and they go, and they, and they go. It's an old story about this English guy who actually had a, it's one of my favorite preacher stories, I don't know if it's true, but there's this English guy who, who uh, he takes his Rolls Royce onto the continent, right? He has it shipped over, and he starts driving his Rolls Royce around the continent, and he breaks down at one point, and he contacts the Rolls Royce and says, uh, the Rolls Royce broke down. They send, they fly somebody over to him. They fix the Rolls Royce, and the guy flies back. And the guy's like, well, that's really great, but how much money is that going to cost me? So when he gets back to England, he communicates with Rolls Royce and says, how much money is it going to cost me to have this guy fly over to fix what was wrong with my Rolls Royce? He got a response. This is what it said. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with the Rolls Royce. 
Yeah, as far as the east is from the west. There's, there's no evidence anywhere that you're a sinner. We have no record of that. I say that because so many Christians get bogged down in shame. They think I've done so much wrong, so badly. But here's the thing, guys. When it comes to this passage, you need to think about this. Have you done anything as bad as killing God? And yet that's precisely what Peter is telling these guys. Hey, you you killed God? He can blot out your sins. He can make them go from as far as the east is from the west. If you repent and turn back. Number six, a right response to the message results in amazing hope. Look at verse 19 again. Uh, Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That, okay, so the result of that turning back, times of refreshing may come. Isn't that lovely phrase? Whenever I think about that, I think, okay, uh, you're, you're playing a sport really hard on a hot day. You're parched. You see the pool or the lake, you go down there, you jump in, and that feeling that you have as you glide through the water, oh, you float there for a minute, so refreshing. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for for the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So, look, it's a hot day. You know that. Living in this world at this particular time, maybe ever, was, it's hot. I'm thirsty. Are you thirsty? Man, I'm tired. It feels like it's never going to end. I'm sweating like crazy. But this passage is saying that, look, here's what's going to happen. For those who turn back, Jesus will come... He will restore all things and he will provide time of refreshing. But he he will grant you hope. He's got refreshing plans for you and I. And you, you do know that your view of the future is probably the thing that has more influence on your today than anything else. If I know what you believe about the future, I can tell you how you'll act today. Um, If I offer you uh, $10 million, because I have it, if I offer you my $10 million for digging a hole out here for the next year, but I offer your friend $1,000 for digging my hole out here, And because I'm forceful like every government, I'm going to make you do it. Tell me what's the difference between how you're going to come to work and how your friend's going to come to work. Like your friend's going to come to work, I hate him, this is awful. And you'll come to work with a shovel on your shoulder, I'm ready to dig. Right? Why? See, you're doing the exact same act. You're doing the exact same thing. Why, Why are you excited and they're mourning? Because of what's to come. Okay, what's to come? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and this sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In about a week, it'll be the 10-year anniversary of the death of my mom. She died suddenly. She got up in the middle of the night, and she walked to the bathroom, and when she walked back, she somehow lost her footing, or she just blacked out, fell forward. She hit her temple on the corner of her dresser, and in two weeks, she was dead because of brain bleeding. I was there. I was the only one there, actually, in the night, be- night before she died, listening to her. Um, she, couldn't, she couldn't cough. She couldn't swallow. She couldn't cough. She was... So I had to sit there and listen to my mother. I held her hand. I had to listen to my mother drown in her own... I have never been so torn up in my life. So when I read passages of scripture that say that death will be no more and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, I remember that day because I, I do remember the next morning when she actually passed away, I kissed her cold forehead and I walked out of the room And I said out loud, this is not the end. And it's not. Because times of refreshing will come. Do you have that hope? And if you have that hope, How does that change the way you feel today? You have $10 million waiting for you. Eternal life, I mean, man, it's worth more than that. I think the love of God has procured it for you apart from anything that you'll ever do. And you have that waiting for you. I don't consider the present suffering worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. I said there were seven, I'm stopping at six. Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm so thankful, Father, for the knowledge that we have, these great hopes, these great, these great things that this passage describes. Father, I pray that you would help us. There are people in the room here who um, I think believe that they're Christians because they've prayed a prayer one day or have, agreed with you at one point or another in their lives, Father, but the fruit of their repentance is missing. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and convict them, move in their hearts, help them to see that perhaps they might be deceiving themselves. But instead of drowning that in grief or turning away and saying, I'm gonna work harder, instead, Father, would you help them to come to you 
hands open to receive what you, what you have, Father. Times of refreshing, Father. The blotting out of their sins. Would they turn to you, Father? Would you grant them eyes to see and ears to hear? Bless us now as your spirit moves among us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.